Today's episode, we're going to talk about build up better, what that means and how partnerships are the future to get us to the next normal. We're going to talk about recovery and what that looks like in different communities and most specifically rural communities. All that next. Hello and welcome to Small Shop Fundraising, a podcast dedicated to small to medium-sized nonprofits and the topics and issues facing them today. My name is Liz Hack and I'm your host. Before we get started, I wanted to thank my brought to you by sponsor. Griffin Fundraising and Marketing is my firm that I work under as a consultant and they have been very supportive of this podcast for the last 10 months. So I wanted just to take one minute and thank them for their continued support of this podcast for the nonprofit industry. And if you have been listening to Small Shop over the last 10 months, you will have seen a pattern of us bringing on guests from across the country. And this episode is no different. We have Paul Doherty on the show today. He is a proud Appalachian, president and CEO of Philanthropy West Virginia. Paul, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Liz. Pleasure to be with you. Thanks so much for joining us today. And full disclosure, I have a full disclosure uh, agreement with my listeners that we actually did this podcast a couple of months ago, but I had my laptop stolen. And so now we're redoing it. And so it's going to be retooled and it's going to be just as great as it once was, except it'll be a little different since it's October and pandemic days. I was just telling Paul, it seems like five years ago. And now it's the end of the first quarter. And so I'm sure a lot of things have changed for everyone listening. And that includes you, right, Paul? Yes, it has. It's constantly evolving day by day. <laughs> Before we jump into what, what is Philanthropy West Virginia and all of that, tell us a little bit more about how you became the president and CEO of an organization called Philanthropy West Virginia. Well, Liz, um, thanks for having me. And it's great to be with you. And, and hopefully I do a better time this round too. I don't think you lost <laughs> the laptop. I actually, I think I just bombed the last one and you want me to do it. So, Absolutely um, not. It was a great. But, but I was, um, I've been honored to serve in this role actually a decade as of this week uh, wow. at Philanthropy West Virginia. I'm getting old. You know, it was kind of an unexpected journey. I never knew that philanthropy working in and with Grant making foundations, corporate giving, private donors was a profession. Uh, growing up in a small town in West Virginia, we always were dealing with challenges of just getting access to financial, you know, philanthropic resources, grant dollars. And little did I know back in middle school and high school, trying to figure out ways to raise resources or actually embed financial opportunities in the community for businesses and for nonprofits would turn into a profession. And so I've always had to deal with areas of scarcity and create abundance. And so that seemed to kind of evolve into falling into the philanthropy field by working with the first two affiliates in West Virginia of community foundations, mm -hmm. which was a whole movement there at the beginning of 2000, 2000, 2003 time period. And just found this connection where they always say is like, if you find your passion and your job, you'll never work another day. That's right. That's exactly And being able to bring together, being entrepreneurial, bringing leaders from different perspectives and, you know, in small towns, whether it's West Virginia, whether it's New Mexico, wherever it may be in counties like that, you, you've got to work across all types of lines and across sectors. And so that was just a skill set that I was fortunate to establish at a young age. 
And that seems to kind of grown into the profession I am now. And so I worked actually as an intern with Philanthropy West Virginia back then. Our old name was West Virginia Grant Makers mm-hmm. and did some communications work and some staff support. And a few years later, as my uh, career evolved, I worked with a couple of different foundations. I had come from small business in a family, family business environment got asked in 2010 to consider applying for this position and had worked across many different sectors of corporate philanthropy, private philanthropy, community foundations, as well as just in public policy as well. Just exciting to be able to really build up West Virginia communities, but also Appalachian opportunities because there's such incredible work going on here. We're just lacking the resources. And so our work at Philanthropy West Virginia is that when philanthropy partners, communities prosper. And so we want to build up those resources locally. Absolutely. Yes. If you go on their website, there's a wonderful quote um, and a value statement that reads, philanthropy is best when it is rooted in communities and connected with our partners, including citizens, nonprofit, government, and partners. It is our humble belief and practice that philanthropy is where hope meets action for when philanthropy partners, communities prosper. So, I love that. I think that is absolutely when that philanthropy is where hope meets action. I mean, that's all you need, right? I love that. Why was it created? Was it because you you wanted to create your own? A great question. Uh, philanthropy West Virginia is 28 years old this year. So in 93, um, I think I was in middle school at the time when it was formed. And it really came out of um, several different companies, private, family, and community foundations we're looking around, how can we do a better job of, of investing in West Virginia grant making and building up our nonprofit community, but also more importantly, improving the quality of life for citizens and creating thriving communities. And with that, what it was is that they said, you know, we've, we've got to learn how to do this philanthropy work better. And so philanthropy West Virginia, the leadership network. And back then it was five different funders came together and said, how can we build out support among peers, but also as different Appalachian communities deal with and a lot of rural communities across our country deal with, there is a massive inequity when it comes to where the philanthropic resources are. They typically go to urban areas, even if they might've come from those rural areas. And so these leaders in 93 wanted to start building out the amount of philanthropy in West Virginia. And because of that, those five became 10 partners we, and then we evolved to where we kind of community foundations just for a few years. And now uh, where we are is that it's a robust, almost 90 members serving West wow. Virginia. And actually all of our members serve some type of neighboring state. So we have that kind of central Appalachian impact because rivers and mountains, because their state lines don't divide the communities, there's a lot of opportunity to partner there. And our work was really built and grown around four cornerstones as a leadership network. The first cornerstone is professional development and how do you, the nuts and bolts of how do you run an effective and impactful nonprofit. And so we do all types of, last year we did almost 70 different professional development programs wow. at almost 1700 different program participants. And that's everything from how do you set up your board? How do you run your foundation to how do you do an effective grant making initiative around education or coordinating learning about COVID response and managing COVID relief funds. Our second area of work is around collaborations, is that there's a lot of opportunities and challenges in West Virginia, like any communities have. And so bringing philanthropy together with their partners from nonprofits, business, and government 
talk about how do we actually move issues forward, whether that's broadband, whether that is food insecurity, whether that's community economic development, addressing the substance use disorder. So we serve as a place to actually uh, establish partnerships so we can leverage more money into our region, but more importantly, mobilize that action, that hope meets action when philanthropy comes together and can leverage bigger dollars. It invests if done well, and it mobilizes action that people see the results for years to come. Third area is public policy. So we work on federal and state policy matters around charitable giving, issues of equity of making sure we're able to invest resources in rural spaces, and also advocating for a strong and healthy infrastructure, civic infrastructure for nonprofits. And our fourth area is to grow philanthropy. West Virginia is one state, one of the states identified about 10 years ago as on the philanthropic divide. When you look at states by per capita of how many found grant making foundations are based there, how many grants are giving, you know, the history of, of charitable giving, West Virginia falls in that bottom 10 states in the country who don't have as much philanthropic assets per capita. And so our role was trying to encourage new foundation creation, growing community foundations, growing support for United Ways, and bringing in national partners, because if they want to have an impact in rural, there's no better laboratory for impact in West Virginia and Central Appalachia. I love it. Sounds like you guys stay busy over there. Sometimes. Sometimes. <laughs> you said 70 events for professional development. I think that in and of itself shows your interest in impacting your community and your industry to support the growth, the knowledge, and the professionals within uh, the nonprofit industries. It sounds like you guys are keeping it keeping everything moving forward. I do have a question. Is Philanthropy West Virginia a part of a national group? Great question. We Philanthropy West Virginia is its own independent organization, but we do have a a network of partners through what's called United Philanthropy Forum, led by the wonderful James Beams Differ and his team. You know, so we work with the Philanthropy Ohio of the world. There's a new Virginia Funders Network. There's Grant Makers of Western PA. There's the Maryland Philanthropy Network. So we work with them It's important to note our impact and work with 70 programs a year, we work with over 100 different partners a year that are issue experts. From local nonprofits, we were just talking with Reverend Patterson, who leads the partnership for African-American churches about vaccine distribution this week. He's going to present a program for us next week week about health inequities and vaccine distribution for our people people of color in West Virginia and having access to it to working with groups like Funders Together to End Homelessness. That network at United Philanthropy Forum is wonderful because they have 90 plus organizations doing all types of work of philanthropy. But secondly, we're working with on the ground groups doing incredible work to changing the lives in West Virginia, but also not just in response to the pandemic. They were doing tremendous work before the pandemic, but now we're looking at how do we build up better as we come through the pandemic and improve communities for the future. That kind of leads me to my next question. In some of the interviews that I've done with other with other guests on the podcast, the surveys that we have unpacked as, as far as the state of Kentucky goes shows that if nonprofits, especially maybe even especially small to medium-sized nonprofits are going to be successful in 2021 and beyond, they're going to have to really lean into collaboration and partners. It sounds like Philanthropy West Virginia has been successful because of the partner network that you all have created, at least partially successful because of that, would you say that other nonprofits are going to have to lean into those partnerships and collaborations in uh, in the communities that you serve? Yes, and 
work in a partnership that when we wrap that up, it's taking those organizations to the next level as well. Too many times people use the term partnerships and nonprofits. And a lot of times those are, it's really, what can I get out of the other organization to benefit my organization versus looking mutual for mutual benefit. And so we strongly encourage, and it is the future. If we look at this time of the pandemic, the level of collaboration at a necessity that's taken place, and I'm not just talking between nonprofits, it's all sectors, it's business, it's nonprofits, it's philanthropy, it's government and the citizenry. If we can rally energy around responding to a once in a century challenge and needs, then why can't we lean into this a bit more coming out of this? Because if we can do a lot now, when times we get to the next normal, I'm not going to say we're going to go back to normal because what happened in the past was not good for a lot of communities where I come from, but looking towards the future, being able to establish partners, be able to have those conversations and hard conversations about, you know, why are we partnering? What are, what does your organization need? What does my organization need? What can we do together? What can we benefit out of that? So we do strongly encourage folks. There's a great resource out there called Trust-Based Philanthropy that we've been sharing through the pandemic. And it's about how funders can do a better job of partnering with nonprofits. And so that's another example of just you know, referencing the trust-based philanthropy models for nonprofits to think about how they can have good conversations with funders to do their work because a lot of them are just trying to survive right now. I have to just say, I love the quote, let's get to the next normal. Let's not go back to the, the old normal, but the, the new normal, right? Uh, or the next normal. I, because there are a lot of things that are going to change and have been changing and will continue to change and stay permanent because of the pandemic. And so we're not going to go back to the things that we were doing before the pandemic because we're a completely different society. So this next new normal and how can we all work together better, build up better? And, and, I, and I have to give credit to one of my colleagues who I believe originated that phrase was Claudia Harold, who's vice president, chief communications officer and public policy leader for the philanthropy Ohio. So that's not my reference. I want to make sure I give her credit in that, that phrase. I'll, I'll be sure to not cut that part out. <laughs> so besides more collaboration, more true partnerships, what other trends is your organization seeing in your state that might be similar, that might be different than the region or even the nation come into the second quarter of 2021? Well, you know, just looking at the aspect of philanthropy is, you know, the definition of love of humankind. And we usually see it through how people give. And I always kind of reference from my perspective, if you use the capital letter P at the beginning of philanthropy for us, that's the billionaire foundations. But in West Virginia and Appalachian, even in, you know, with Kentucky and all our neighboring states, we have philanthropy, but it's little p. And what I mean by that, it's, it's citizen-based giving. And historically, the uh, West Virginia in particular, is that the bulk of charitable giving has come from the middle and low-income class because it, it's this groundswell of support. And, and in this crisis, we have seen tremendous giving from citizens from every level who have given to relief funds. And we've, we've worked with the wonderful network of United Ways and community foundations in our state who've managed, I think, 22 different relief funds. And we've had wonderful contributors from business, large foundations, but it's this outpouring of everyday citizens that we work with and know that believe in not just the crisis, but building back communities. So one important thing right now is that working through Congress is establishing a universal charitable 
giving law. Now that it was proposed before the pandemic, they did build it into some of the CARES Act and American Rescue Plan for extending that. But one of the proposals with a bipartisan support in the U.S. Senate is making that increased. And what that is, is that for those that don't itemize on their taxes, this would be an above the line deduction that they can have. And in giving every citizen access to charitable giving, to take their hard-earned dollars and to invest in their community to make it better is an absolute example of democracy in action. Mm-hmm. And with that is that so the trend we're seeing is that it'd be great for them to permanently enact that universal charitable giving. That sounds wonky and it's tax policy, but it gives life for those, for communities and nonprofits, because every dollar does impact them. But, you know, especially when you're raising a family or retired, when you're able to deduct a little bit and redirect that money to your charity of choice that invests locally, that is critical. And so advocacy on that is one trend. I think the other trend we're seeing is that rural is, you know, at the center of a lot of discussions right now. But we've, it's episodic. About every five to 10 years, it pops up right. and something happens and it's lost. So right now, we really need to push forward in letting national partners, government, their grant dollars, foundations and corporations to say, if we're able to pull together partnerships, across communities that don't have as much sophisticated nonprofit infrastructure like they have in uh, wonderful cities like Pittsburgh and Columbus, but in, mm-hmm. in rural areas of, you know, thinking about Berea, Kentucky, and thinking about Gilbert, West Virginia, or Harrisville, West Virginia, mm-hmm. that if they're able to pull together during this, is that let's tell the story of how these communities are doing credible work. Let's lift those up, and let's not let people forget this when we get beyond this point. And let's share those case studies and talk about how local communities, the Standard Social Innovation Review just had an article about national philanthropy's blind spot in rural, because they kind of just look and say there's no capacity there, or they don't understand how it works. And so it's really important that we take a pause, tell how we do work, the really good innovations going on. But then secondly, have those conversations. Right now, it's around a Zoom, not a table, like we like to do in West Virginia or in Appalachia. I know many nonprofits, they're probably listening to this or smaller shops. We come from a shop that's staff of three. And so they're busy doing the work. But if there's a way to work with volunteers, college students to, to capture the data and the stories of what you're doing, even if it's one or two snippets mm-hmm. of the impact, packaging that and telling the world in the local press and op-eds or reaching broader is so key right now. So that trend is, again, the partnerships, the federal legislation, but don't lose this opportunity to tell some incredible work for the future. Okay, I have some pushback on that because I was just in a meeting yesterday about continuing to acknowledge and shine a spotlight on people who have done great work during the pandemic on an annual basis over the next five years. So basically it was like an awards type situation that we had a conversation around. And a lot of the people around the table thought, no, no one wants to hear about the pandemic in in two years. No one's going to, not that anyone's not going to care, but that it reminds them of not so bright days. What would you say to to someone who said that? How would we then package these incredible stories? Because there's been some incredible work done. What would you say? I would say that we do need to look at the time beyond this point, but we would be looking in five years, if we look back and said, we didn't tell the impact of what happened during the crisis. Mm -hmm. And what we can do for the future, if we use the stories for the next normal, for the next phase, that's where I think is the critical cross point. 
people are not going to want to look back and think about the tragedy, the injustices when it comes to racial injustices. But if we focus on how neighbors work with neighbors, with funders and philanthropy to lift up and build momentum to create the right investments, the right justice, the right opportunities for our communities, those are the stories we want to lean into. Because if a community is able to rally around in food insecurity, because an entire county, as an example, doesn't have a grocery store at all. And yes, we deployed food boxes during the pandemic because people couldn't transport their word about their health. But if we use that story to draw attention for other opportunities that actually established a local grocery store in a food desert, those are the stories that actually build the community up so there's sustainability for the long term. So to recap on that one, yeah. that using, using the moment of collaboration to be the infrastructure for building up, but then also letting others know that if during a crisis we can create great progress, then could you imagine what we can do if there's bigger investments as we go into a point of recovery and rebuilding? One of my other guests talked about how one of his resources is history. And we need to remember what we can do when we work together, when we're motivated by a pandemic or social unrest, and continue that type of motivation as we move forward and remember our history of how we did move, uh, work together. So, and I think for us in West Virginia, you know, looking at history is we had an experience five years ago with, uh, with two-thirds of the state was impacted by a historic 1,000-year flood. Wow. Lost, tragically, many lives. We were not prepared to deal with the disaster at that point among the great leadership of our United Ways and community foundations, numerous nonprofits and churches, and of course, our partners in state government, federal government, and local government. We, we had that event building up and taking place, but you know, people's memory, when things change, it quickly forget what we had before. And so you're know, using the moment and not letting it pass by without intensifying the work so that the community five years from now that we're in is actually stronger. We have communities from the 1985 floods in West Virginia that are still trying to rebuild. Wow. So we don't want to pass this opportunity during the pandemic because a year from now or two years from now, people will be like, what was that little blip in 2000, 2000 <laughs> 2020 and 2021? We don't want that. We want our... So moving on to another question kind of about your organization and your current environment. How is your organization and your membership reacting to, you know, this movement in 2021 into the second quarter? Is it a positive one? Are people feeling optimistic? I would say it's, it's, it's a matter of being hopeful, but also realistic that we're still, the pandemic's not over. Right. Um, and so within the philanthropic sector with our you know, private and family and community foundation members, corporations, United Ways, and, and other philanthropic grant makers, we are looking at an environment as to, okay, we've really rallied a lot of support. A lot of challenges that we had pre-pandemic have been lifted up, like food insecurity, the digital divide, economic challenges. And so we're digging in now to think strategically, like what, what does this mean and how do we use, again, this moment to get people positioned, partnerships positioned, so that we can actually pull down more opportunities coming out of this period. So people are hopeful but they're also reflect, reflecting on what was done last year. And then looking at where are the needs continuing? Because you know, the recovery in rural areas from an economic downturn, especially a pandemic, will last longer than other parts of the country. Yeah. 
And so we have to be, try to refresh ourselves. And I think some people are exhausted right now. I'll be quite frank. They're just exhausted because there wasn't much light at the end of the tunnel, but now we are seeing a light in the tunnel as vaccines are distributed and, and some progress with the numbers going down. Yeah. I've heard people call this uh, a COVID wall where people are just are kind of exhausted and they've just kind of hit, hit a wall and hashtag COVID wall where, where they just exhausted. It's not that they're not still hopeful, like you're saying, but it's it's been a long haul for us to be living in this way. I, I agree. Even in, in our state, regionally, people are being hopeful and reflective and they're trying to to where we can all be vaccinated and, and there's that new next normal, right, Paul? Exactly. And I think you're, you're right. Absolutely. I think people, there's fatigue with anything. Yeah. Zoom fatigue, pandemic fatigue. And so I think the other part is we really need to be conscious of everyone's personal, you know, physical and mental health. And that's Absolutely. a very important part of this because, you know, most crises that we encounter, you know, a flood, the tragedy of the, the tornado that just hit or a hurricane or a blizzard, there's usually a, a point of time that's involved. And then there's usually the recovery period. It's, it's mucking out a house, it's shoveling out, it's cleaning up, it's rebuilding where this is kind of ongoing. And so the fatigue is there is real. We need to be conscious of people's health and providing support for them in that. Absolutely. And, and transitioning into my last question before we get into what I call my one common questions. And this one you'll need your crystal ball for. So get that ready, dust that off. Okay. What do you think the future of philanthropy holds for 2021? My crystal ball is cracked and a little dusty. So oh, no. I'm going to bosh it up. Um, <laughs> But I think this whole concept of trust-based philanthropy of uh, donors, of grant-making foundations and corporations to meet organizations where they are now during their challenges is so key. To really let the organization share what their needs are, to be honest about their challenges, and then provide investment there. So I think there was a lot of progress last year with funders adjusting their giving and their grant making to recognize this, but also holding that space, not letting the pandemic be an excuse, but actually to strengthen up the civic infrastructure. You know, broadband, water, and sewer are so critical for our communities. So are strong nonprofits. And right. if we, you know, we've seen a lot of cracks created because of inequities because of the challenges. So I think the one part is, is to invest and to lean in to investing in their strength to get through this, but also thinking about what are innovations. I think another area is really looking at the inequities that exist when it comes to race and gender, sexual orientation, uh, looking at age and ability is for philanthropy to be leaders in that space and to address the inequities, but not just for a moment in time, but actually have a conversation and look internally about their external internal work to improve that going forward. Yes. Don't just check a box. Yes. has been my rallying call for that whenever I talk about this is um, let's think deeper. Let's just not cross it off our to-do list. Absolutely. Uh, and, and a lot of this work requires a lot of time. It requires a lot right. of conversations and it's hard to do that in the Zoom world. And, mm -hmm. and really setting the space as we come into that next normal as when eventually we're able to have more in-person events and programs and meetings is that we have to do some deep conversation and to listen. You know, as my grandmother used to say, God has blessed you with two ears and one mouth. Use mm -hmm. them accordingly. And accordingly is listen to the lived experience. Listen to what people's challenges are 
and then think with them and work with them, not, not do stuff to them, but work with them to figure out solutions going forward. I love that. A great advice for anyone listening today. One more question. I know I just said, I already said that, but one more question. I've heard and I've witnessed that a lot of you, you were talking about in-person events and going back to more face-to-face and being in the same room as people. But I've also had heard, have heard that a lot of volunteers may be providing a little pushback on the need for in-person requests for money or going on a, on a, what traditionally called as a call where you go and meet someone in their office or their home or a coffee shop and, and do the solicitation for gifts face-to-face when we have all these wonderful technologies now, of, of like what we're using now, a Zoom call or video calling, what would you say to that? Is that something that you all are seeing in West Virginia and in your region? Will we ever get back being more in person? You know, I think we have to remember that a lot of communities in the United States do not have any access to quality broadband. Okay. Some of them are still trying to get quality phone service or some of them still have dial up or satellite internet. So the fact that if we, it does provide efficiency. I was on a call yesterday with some colleagues across the country and listening in They're like, it's just so nice not to spend five hours in a car every day crisscrossing or hopping a plane to crisscross my state and other parts of the country. And I agree with that to some extent, but you know, when it's safe, when the staff, when the guests, when the participants are able to get together that are healthy and well, and even the people that are hosting the event, the caterers, the custodial staff, when they're safe. I want to be very clear about this. Mm-hmm. The safety of individuals at the forefront of our work is that there's nothing that can replace an in-person conversation. So the tools of Zoom and stuff are great, but getting to know a place, getting to know a people to work with and your partners. I come from a small town. And of course, I'm talking about pre-pandemic times, but getting mm-hmm. to interact with people, even from a distance in a parking lot, 10 feet apart, masked up, to get to know and build a level of trust mm-hmm. requires in-person. What that looks like, I don't know. But if we rely totally on the technology, I think we'll get a point where, one, there'll be a growing divide of those that don't have the technological access to even participate. And a lot of times in-person meetings, especially nationally, where a lot of conversations, decisions get made, people from rural communities can't afford the conference registration or the expensive hotel or even the flight to get there. So Zoom does, so Zoom or, or 360 meetings or whatever, does provide some access to things they typically don't get access to, get a chance to go to. But when we look at things, I I think it really should be a hybrid in two is making sure people, if they're going to work with individuals in different places, whether you're talking about, you know, my colleagues doing great work in, in Philadelphia, or whether it's over in Cumberland, Maryland, or whether it's Morgantown, West Virginia, or down in Lewisburg, West Virginia, is that getting to experience the space, the place, the work and the partners just takes things to a new level of trust, of two, effectiveness, and three, that those who typically couldn't travel beyond their places or access because of the digital divide, their voices are heard. And more importantly, the partnerships are established. The connectivity in person is so key, but of course, keeping everybody health and well as you do it. And this is why Paul, you are the president and CEO of Philanthropy West Virginia. It was so eloquently put. There's a place for all of the ways that we connect. It may not be available to all people right now. And that's something that we need to work on as a, as a nation. And so absolutely, thank you for, for answering my last question before we get to the one common questions 
This is a group of questions that I ask all my guests. There, it's just a group of four. Are you are you ready? They're they're not hard. I'll try is, my best. I okay. studied all night on this. Okay, good. Okay, so number one, what is one thing that you love about working with nonprofit? You know, we've been trying to use the term social profit because there's such value that nonprofits add to our communities. There's a great author, David Grant, who does a book about on his piece, but I use this. What I love about the social profit sector, the civic profit sector, is that it gives life for the strength of any community because of what they accomplish and what they can do on increasingly limited resources sometimes, but a belief of building up a stronger democracy, a stronger America, a stronger community. So just the belief and the focus and the fact that they are elevating the community to the future even better. It's one of the great things I love about the social profit sector. That's wonderful. That's what you love, but what's one thing that you love less about working with nonprofits? I want to change that question just a little bit, if it's okay. I wouldn't say it's working with nonprofits. I would say it's about the challenges for nonprofits. Okay. And, and what I love less is that they don't always get the respect and involvement they deserve. It, yeah. It's because they do such critical work of lessening the burden on government, mm -hmm. of creating innovative programs and initiatives that other sectors don't have the knowledge or capacity to do but they have incredible impact and involvement. And the fact that when we set tables of decision-making at the table, you know, we need to make sure we change that model going forward because this pandemic's response and recovery will probably not as be as strong if it wasn't for the, so, the, the social profit sector and the work they're doing in their, in their communities. Absolutely. So I would hope, what I love less is that we don't always get the respect and involvement coming out of this. I'd love to see that they, they, they're invited to the table they're recognized for their impact, their economic impact, and they get the respect they deserve as equals in deciding their community's future. I love that answer. I, I feel like the res the respect of being first into a problem and being and willing to be innovative is is something that nonprofit the willingness to try something and see if it's gonna fly or or fail. Love that answer. What is one of your favorite resources? that you would like to share with the listeners? Hard to narrow it down to one, but um, <laughs> one of the top 10, uh, I would say is the connectivity of conversations with peers, of being able to get 30 minutes with a colleague. And that's, that's more in the intellectual and or you know, uh, social capital, being able to have networks of fellow funders, of nonprofits, of government officials. So you're working through the resources that exist around like the West Virginia Nonprofit Association, United Philanthropy Forum, Independent Sector. Those are great resources that aren't books. They aren't, you know, PowerPoints. They aren't websites. They are real lived experience that for us to learn from and to share with. That's wonderful. Yeah. What is one thing you or your organization is doing to be more diverse, equitable, and inclusive? We've kind of talked about this a little bit already uh, during this episode, but more specific. Sure. Um, so Philanthropy West Virginia has been doing work around equity inclusion for a number of years now. And I want to give huge thanks to our board members who are leading our equity inclusion working group at Philanthropy West Virginia. Dr. Michelle Foster, Trace Ross, Dr. Usha Bassan, Chris Molnar, Jim Fawcett, uh, George Montgomery, Michael Huffman. I'm, I know I'm finished, forgetting a few, so I apologize to them. But we established a working group about a year ago. Uh, we delayed a little bit because of the pandemic. It's been an effort for us to look internally and externally in philanthropy as how we are 
defining equity and how we're building up those communities. And so that has been tremendous because we've been able to do a lot of assessments and practices. And we define equity at Philanthropy West Virginia, race, gender, ability, age, geography, and sexual orientation. And so with that is being able to actually do the deep work, but then also provide programs that allow for other foundations and companies to really look at how they are reaching different communities, especially marginalized communities. So that's that whole work body of work there is, I'd say, the kind of the effort we have underway. We're still learning how to do it, especially uh, across rural communities in the country. Again, I want to thank you so much for your time today, Paul. If, if people had more questions or wanted to learn more about Philanthropy West Virginia, can, can they find you on LinkedIn? Is there an email that I could provide to them? Sure. Yeah. So I'm on LinkedIn, Paul D. Darty, uh, or they can do Paul at PhilanthropyWV. Dot org, uh, But also I, I give high recommendations for folks that they have wonderful peers of ours in their parts of the country, but it's Kentucky, Ohio, Indiana. So United Philanthropy Forum and the team there is wonderful to be a resource to work with other foundations and individuals and also the National Council of Nonprofits is a great and there's state level associations for nonprofits. We have the Western Nonprofit Association. I guess it's not Kentucky Nonprofit Association. Yes. So I'm not an all go to but those are other great resources that I just want to highlight and give salute to them for the work they do. I will definitely add those links into the show notes so that people can click on them quickly. I want to thank you so much for your time today, Paul. This has been just a wonderful episode to to learn more about what Philanthropy West Virginia is doing for its community and how we might be able to learn from one another on how to build up better. So thank you so much for your time today. Liz, thank you. Thanks for all that you do for uh, so many communities and an important part of our democracy. This has been Small Shop Fundraising. I'm your host, Liz Hack. Thanks for listening.